The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host Naomi Baratera and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming the Guild provides here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today we present part three of four episodes on Wagner's Ring Cycle. Each episode in this series covers one of the operas in the cycle, You don't have to listen to them in order to follow the content of the lecture, but if you want to get a sense of the cycle, we suggest listening to episodes 43 and 44 before starting this one. Our lecturer is the legendary Met Opera radio broadcast host Peter Allen, and today he will be taking us through Wagner's Siegfried. When Giuseppe Verdi first heard the music of Richard Wagner, his comment was, he's mad. Many years later, when Wagner died, Verdi wrote to a friend, his name leaves a mighty imprint on the history of art. And then he crossed out mighty, potente, and wrote instead, very mighty, potentissima. This is Peter Allen with part three of Talking About the Ring, a series about Wagner's mighty cycle of four operas, Der Ring des Nibelungen. This third talk is about the third opera of the cycle, Siegfried, And I've begun with Wagner and Verdi because despite the differences between the great Italian and the great German, early in their careers, both were working in the same important direction, although in different ways. They were born in the same year, 1813, and had their first big successes in the same year, 1842, Verdi with Nabucco and Wagner with Rienzi. Nearly 30 years later, the huge success of Aida immediately turned sour for Verdi because he was accused of imitating Wagner. He had been accused of that before, and he had defended himself by pointing to his own earlier operas. He might also have cited his early letter to the baritone who was his first Macbeth. One sentence in that letter reads, I would have you serve the poet better than the composer. That sentence could well be a motto for Wagner's famous book entitled Opera and Drama. In German editions of opera and drama, one sentence is always printed in bold-faced lettering. The mistake in opera consists in the fact that a means of expression, music, has been made the object, whereas the object of expression, drama, has been made a means. That language has always troubled me, so let me rephrase it. In opera until now, drama has been used only as a springboard for writing music but music should be used to communicate drama. Later, he said, Mozart had been surprisingly lucky in the relationship between poet and composer. And even Wagner's two idols, Beethoven and Shakespeare, had fallen short of the true goal, the artwork of the future, which would combine poetry and music, dance, painting, all the arts, in a collective work of art, a Gesamtkunstwerk. Something close to that, Wagner said, had been achieved in the theater of ancient Greece, which, he felt, had had deep significance for the entire community, a significance, Wagner said, could and should be restored to the theater. Wagner was also impressed by a form frequently used in Greek drama, the form of the trilogy. The four dramas of the ring were written as a prologue, Das Rheingold, followed by the trilogy of Die Valkyrie, Siegfried, and Götterdämmerung. But, he said, after the Greeks, each art had gone its own way and degenerated. As a result, opera had become mere commercial entertainment. Another basic concept of Wagner's was that in the origins of human speech, the first sounds uttered in order to communicate emotions were vowels. Later, consonants made communication more specific, more intellectual. But bear in mind that this most intellectual of composers always exalted the emotional above the intellectual. Feelings are spontaneous and so true. Thought comes later and so is farther from the truth. 
Most of these ideas had been eagerly discussed in Germany before Wagner was born. One writer, Novelis, had said the vowel was the soul of language and its goal was emancipation into music. So the ground was prepared when Wagner, in opera and drama, said consonants not only made the emotional more intellectual, but could even underline both similarities and contrasts between ideas by repetition of consonants or alliteration. Wagner's examples lose in translation, so let me make up a rough example in English. Jewelry may bring joy, but may also bring jealousy. Alliteration was not used in that way in opera before Wagner. It was used in medieval poetry called Stabreim, a type of poetry that had the further advantage in Wagner's eyes of using few words and short lines of verse, both of which, by the way, Verdi had recommended to his librettist for Macbeth. Wagner went on to say that music could do even more than alliteration to bring ideas or emotions together. Music, Wagner liked to say, is a woman. Modern Italian opera is a prostitute, modern French opera is a coquette, and German opera a prude. A prude, he explains, is a woman without love on principle. True music is a woman who truly loves, and she gives her love unconditionally. To whom, asks Wagner? To someone who needs her love for his redemption, the poet. Many pages later, Wagner switches metaphors to say that the poet of the future can safely journey to his goal in the ship invented by the musician, the orchestra. But beyond those metaphors, opera and drama goes into immensely challenging details, such as which syllable of a word should be linked to which note of music. And then Wagner proceeded to actually carry out that unprecedented synthesis of words and music to an impressive degree in the ring. As you might expect, Wagner was not entirely consistent. For instance, after using alliteration extensively, he partly abandoned it and later he gave greater importance to music in the hierarchy of all the arts. Opera and drama is often difficult reading, but remarkably, Wagner expressed some of his ideas in clear and even humorous prose ten years before he wrote opera and drama, when he and his first wife, Minna, were living in Paris in poverty. He earned a few francs making piano arrangements, and he wrote some short stories. In one of them, he pokes fun at his own poverty and puts his theories into the mouth of Beethoven. If I were to write an opera after my own liking, says Beethoven, people would run away from it. It would have no arias. It would be a true musical drama. Wagner later, as himself, said that among other things, arias are a degenerate form of folk song. And in The Ring, he did largely eliminate the aria. He did away with the standard structure of opera, the pattern of alternating between melodic arias and less melodic plot narration or recitative. Wagner replaced that alternating pattern with continuous melody or endless melody, that is, a linking of one musical phrase to another so that an individual phrase never seems to come to its expected end. Moreover, each melodic phrase can represent a person or thing or idea and each phrase or motif can be varied either slightly or considerably with significance to the drama. Used in that way, they have come to be called leitmotifs, leading motifs. Those phrases or motifs are often uttered by the orchestra, and in the preludes to Wagner's operas, the orchestra usually weaves together several motifs. The prelude to Siegfried opens with an ominous roll on the kettle drums and a short motif called brooding or scheming. That motif was played in Das Rheingold when the Nibelung dwarf Mima was trying to figure out how to overthrow the cruel king of the Nibelung dwarfs, his brother Albrecht. Mima, a clever smith, 
had made for Alberich the magical Tarnhelm, a metalwork cap or hood that can change the person who wears it into any shape at all. Mima had been forced to make the Tarnhelm through the great power of a ring that Alberich had made, made from the Rhine gold which he had seized from the Rhine maidens. Here's how the motif of the ring sounded in the first opera of the cycle. But Alberich had been tricked out of the ring by the high god Wotan and the clever god Loga. Alberich then pronounced a mighty curse on the ring. As Mima, during the prelude to Siegfried, broods on how to get the ring for himself, its motif takes on the eerie color of a fleeting, tantalizing vision. Prominent in the prelude and the first act of Siegfried is the motif of the Nibelung dwarfs who are smiths. It was first heard in Das Rheingold, played on 18 anvils. In the prelude to Siegfried, the Nibelung theme is played by strings. The Nibelungs were kept in servitude by Alberich to dig gold for him. That gold, the ring, and the Tarnhelm constitute the Nibelung hoard or treasure. Here is the baleful motif of the hoard, played twice, very, very slowly. Later in the prelude, the motif of the horde is played at more usual speed, along with the motifs of misery and the Nibelungs. is now being guarded by a dragon named Fafner, who can be conquered only by a fearless hero, Siegfried, of course, conquered with the help of a great sword. Let me jump ahead for a moment to a little device of Wagner's that it's nice to be aware of. The sword has a name, Notung, meaning needed thing, and the specific motif of Notung with its downward leap of an octave is simply the second and third notes of the motif of the sword. In almost the same way, the motif of brooding was derived from the ring motif, but let me repeat what I've said in earlier parts of talking about the ring. A critic once wrote that only an extraordinary ear and memory can retain all the light motifs. True, but happily, it's not necessary to retain or recognize all of them to enjoy the ring profoundly. Now, to return to the sword, it was shattered in the second opera of the cycle by the angry god Wotan. Mima has the pieces of the sword, which he has tried unsuccessfully to weld together for the young Siegfried as part of his secret plan to get the Nibelung horde for himself. All that is what unhappy Mima is brooding about during the prelude. The curtain will rise to the sound of the Nibelung motif hammered out by Mima on an anvil in a cave in the forest. Mima is trying to make a sword Siegfried can't break. The low strings beneath the violins tell us that Mima feels he is now in servitude to Siegfried.
Enforced drudgery, useless toil, I've made swords fit for a giant, and Siegfried breaks them like toys and scolds me. Mima hammers on in fury and despair until we hear the motif of Siegfried's horn played at first by strings. Siegfried is referred to throughout the opera as child or boy. He's a youth full of high spirits who comes into the cave leading a bear and roars with laughter at Mima's fright. When Mima says the sword is finished, Siegfried tells the bear, I don't need you anymore. And as the bear backs out, the horn motif is played in reverse. Because of its humor and its happy ending, this opera has been called the third movement scherzo of a four movement symphony, and Wagner thought this would be his most popular work. As Siegfried scornfully comments on the sword, we hear his own motif played twice. He smashes the sword, flings away the pieces, and berates Mima mercilessly as the orchestra plays a motif called Siegfried's Anger or Impatience. Mima complains that Siegfried forgets what Mima taught him, gratitude. And we hear a simplified, softened, Nibelung hammering motif the motif of Mima himself. Siegfried owes him gratitude for having tenderly fed him, taught him, made him a comfortable bed, warm clothing, and his bright-sounding horn. It's a song Siegfried hears too often. The more Mima does for him, the more he hates him. Yet, although he loves the birds and beasts of the forest and hates Mima, he always comes back to him. Why? The orchestra anticipates Mima's answer with the flowing motif of longing for love. which is heard several times. Mima says young birds return to the nest out of longing for love. Yes, Siegfried has seen how birds and deer and foxes mate and take care of their young, and so he learned what love is. But where is his mother? Are you a bird or a fox? I'm your father and mother. But the boy knows that the young resemble their parents and has seen in the brook that he doesn't look like Mima. And now he knows why he comes back to Mima to find out who his father and mother really are. He seizes Mima by the throat until Mima answers. He is no relative, but Siegfried's friend out of pity. Mima's narrative is accompanied by three themes from Die Valkyra. The first, related to Siegfried's race, the Velsungs, is called Velsung's Woe, or Velsung's Bond of Sympathy. The second is that of his mother, Sieglinde. The third is a motif of love. As we hear them, Mima tells, in a truly poignant narrative, how once in the forest he found a pitiful woman who gave birth to Siegfried and died. Mima shows Siegfried the pieces of the sword his father was using when he was killed in battle. After his initial sadness, 
The boy is delighted that Nima is not his father and threatens him with a beating if he does not reforge the broken sword. With the sword, he'll leave to see the world and never return, the motif of wanderlust or freedom. The first scene of Act One ends with Mima more unhappy than ever. Wagner called young Siegfried the most beautiful dream of my life. The reactions of others to the hero are as varied as reactions to Wagner himself. Wagner's favorite philosopher in his mature years, Schopenhauer, thought Siegfried was monstrously ungrateful to Mima. George Bernard Shaw felt that Siegfried's likes and dislikes are sane and healthy. He is altogether an inspiring young forester, a son of the morning. But even more than Siegfried, the next character we meet, the great god Wotan, is clearly the figure with whom Wagner most closely identified, particularly in the feeling of sorrowful resignation that was powerfully expressed in Die Valkyrie. That feeling of defeat has led Wotan to assume in this opera the role and disguise of merely the wanderer, a figure out of myth. In the medieval work called the Poetic Edda, the Norse god Odin sometimes disguised himself as the wanderer or the way-weary or the riddle reader, and in that disguise would challenge his host to a contest of knowledge with a loser to forfeit his head. Wotan too, as the wanderer, is a mysterious figure with a ghostly but majestic motif of slow chords played now as he quotes almost literally from the Edda, Wanderer, I'm called by the world, far have I traveled over the back of the earth. Another of Wagner's major sources is the Volsunga saga, the story of the Volsungs in German, the Velsungs, the race founded by the god. In the Volsunga saga, Odin wears a long blue cloak, a broad hat pulled down where one eye is missing, and he carries a great spear. It is that spear that in the saga broke the sword of Sigmund, and in Die Valkyrie broke the sword of Siegmund, the father of Siegfried. At the wanderer's entrance, carrying his spear, Mima is terrified. Unwillingly, he plays the deadly riddle game of three questions. The loser will pay with his head. He asks Wotan, who lives in the earth, then on the earth, and finally in the cloudy heights above the earth? Wotan answers to the first, the Nibelungs, black elves forced by Black Alberich to dig gold. On the earth are the giants, who won the Nibelung horde, but the wanderer goes on, the giant Fafner, under the power of Albrecht's curse on the ring, killed his brother Fossold for the horde, which Fafner now guards in the shape of a dragon. On high live the gods in their great hall Valhalla, ruled by Wotan, whom the wanderer calls Light Albrecht, a name recognizing both the rivalry of Wotan and Albrecht and their similarity since both Wotan and Alberich in Das Rheingold had been willing to give up love for power, for the ring. Wotan rules by his great spear, made from a branch torn from the sacred world ash tree. On the spear are carved holy treaties that govern the world. This is the powerful descending motif of the spear. <laughs> Mima is further terrified when the spear, seemingly by chance, touches the ground and produces a gentle clap of thunder. Now, it's the wanderer's turn to ask questions. First, which race does Wotan love best but treat worst? To the tune of the Velsung motif, normally mournful but now jaunty with Mima's triumph, Mima says the Velsungs, the twins Siegmund and Sieglinde, whose son is Siegfried. Stammten von Wese, Heim Peter zwei. 
Exactly, says the god. And now tell me, since Siegfried is to kill Fafner and get the ring for the dwarf who raised him, which sword will he use? Notung is the name of the sword. Wotan thrust it into a tree, and only Siegmund could pull it out. But in battle, it broke on Wotan's spear. Do I still keep my head? Yes, you clever smith. But Wotan's third question, who will weld together the pieces of Notung, drives Mima to hysteria, which Wotan only increases by giving him the answer. Only one who has never known fear. To him, do I leave your head? The god departs, and Mima, in terror, stares into the flickering sunlight of the forest outside the cave and thinks he sees flames and Fafner himself. We hear the high, quick motif of fire and also the low, sluggish motif of the dragon. At the peak of Mima's hallucinations, Siegfried will return for scene three. Wagner, as a child, suffered from terrifying fantasies like Mima's, which may be one reason he so admired the fearless Siegfried. But of course, that may be one reason Siegfried was generally so popular. The real 16th century poet Hans Sachs, the same Hans Sachs that Wagner glorified in Die Meistersinger, wrote a play about Siegfried. A trilogy on Siegfried was written three years before Wagner was born. And an opera called simply Die Nibelungen by Heinrich Dorn was produced by Wagner's friend Franz Liszt after Wagner had already composed Das Rheingold. Siegfried is central to the great medieval German epic Das Nibelungenlied, the Nibelung Song. His adventures dominate the first half, and his death by treachery overshadows the second half. But there is nothing about Siegfried's upbringing in the Nibelungenlied that comes mainly from the Volsunga saga, where Siegfried, or Sigurd, is also an orphan raised by a calculating foster father who also gets his just desserts from the young hero. In the opera, Mima decides to save his head from the one who knows no fear by telling Siegfried his mother wanted him to learn fear, to be able to deal with the world outside the forest. Siegfried becomes eager to learn. A boy who wanted to learn fear is in the Grimm Brothers' famous collection of fairy tales. Wagner had long thought of the story as a possible subject in itself and suddenly realized it fitted perfectly with the legendary fearlessness of Siegfried, who in the opera now asks Mima whether fear is some art or skill, some kunst, the same word and the same question as in the fairy tale. Mima tries to arouse in Siegfried a terrifying image like the one he himself has just had, but fails completely. He will lead Siegfried to Fafner, who will teach him. That's fine with Siegfried, and he asks for the sword. When Mima admits he can't weld it, the boy brushes him aside and astonishes Mima by filing the pieces to powder, melting it down, and casting it. The orchestra helps him file. and work the bellows for the fire in his first forging song, Blow, Bellows, Blow the Fire. stares in wonder and sees that Siegfried will forge the sword. But if Siegfried learns fear, he will not kill Fafner, and if he does not learn fear, he will kill Mima. The solution? After Siegfried kills Fafner, Mima will offer him a cooling drink, a potion that will put him to sleep, and Mima will use on Siegfried the very sword that killed Fafner. He congratulates himself gleefully as Siegfried casts the molten metal and then hammers the cooling steel in his joyful second forging song.
Siegfried attaches the hilt to the blade and cries out in triumph, No Tung, and the sword motif rings out. He calls on Mima to watch how No Tung cuts, and the dwarf falls off his stool in astonishment as Siegfried raises No Tung and with a tremendous blow slices through the anvil. The curtain falls as Siegfried triumphantly waves Notung in the air. Perhaps I should add that the boy in the Grimm Brothers' fairy tale cut through an anvil with an axe, whereas in the Volsunger saga, the sword was so sharp, it cut a shred of wool floating on the water. As to the character of Siegfried himself, according to Heinrich Porges, who took rehearsal notes for Wagner, the actor of Siegfried should not give the impression of wanting to violate the standards of civilized society. The actor must present an essentially heroic personality who has not yet found an object in life worthy of his superabundant strength. Wagner was a master of acting, not only himself, but also in teaching others. And he taught acting and singing by insisting that the singer understand and clearly transmit the meaning of the words. Many years after opera and drama, he wrote the essay on actors and singers, in which he gives increased importance to the performers, including the players in the orchestra. He said good German singers were rare because they ruined their voices by trying for effects without understanding the words. Verdi, too, in writing to his first Macbeth, had said, study the words and the dramatic situation, and the music will come right of itself. Advice that applies above all with composers intent on genuinely linking words and music. Perhaps not enough notice has been taken of Wagner's skill at characterization through words and music. Would the words and music of Mima fit Siegfried or Wotan? They would not even fit Mima's own brother, Alberich, who created and then cursed the ring, and who, in Act Two, will confront Mima and confront Wotan. And we'll also meet Fafner, formerly a giant, now a dragon, guarding the Nibelung gold, the magical Tarnhelm, and the powerful ring. The act begins in the deep gloom of the forest at night and slowly changes to the dappled sunlight of the most idyllic scene of the entire ring cycle. Pictures of nature from a distant, threatening storm to the glad caroling of birds are evoked with a magical sureness of touch that is typical of Wagner, the kind of mastery that led Verdi to say, Wagner surpasses every other composer in his rich variety of instrumental color. That richness of color can be heard even when Wagner uses only one or two instruments, as he does at the beginning of the Prelude to Act II, which has been called a poem of evil. Kettle drums, like a sluggish heartbeat, play a new version of the giant's motif for Fafner, and the bass tuba gives Fafner's slow, sinister writhing as a dragon. Among other motifs in the prelude is that of brooding, but in a fast, vigorous form for Alberich. Alberich is alone on stage when the curtain rises, almost invisible in the dark forest near Fafner's lair. Is that bluish light, he wonders, the dawn that will bring Fafner's killer? No, it's the stormy approach of the wanderer, whom Alberich instantly recognizes as Wotan and calls a shameless thief. He rages at the god for robbing him of the ring. He taunts him for his fear of committing a second crime by seizing the ring again and sneers at the plan to have Siegfried get the ring instead. 
but Wotan disclaims any interest in the ring and even suggests that Alberich warn Fafner that Siegfried is coming and ask for the ring as a reward. He astonishes Alberich by waking Fafner, who rejects the offer, and after a yawn on the trombone says, I lie here and possess. Let me sleep. Wotan laughs at their failure and disappears as Alberich angrily hides to wait for Siegfried. At dawn, Siegfried arrives, guided by Mima. Is this where he will learn fear? Nowhere else so likely, says Mima, who describes the huge jaws and poisonous saliva and menacing tail of Fafner. But the boy merely wants to know where to aim Notung. Is Fafner's heart in the usual place? On hearing it is, he orders Mima to leave and stretches out alone in the shade of a tree to music familiar from the concert hall, Forest Murmurs. He's glad ugly Mima is not his father. His real father must have looked like Siegfried. But how did his mother look? Her shining eyes must have been like a doe's, but more beautiful. If only I could see my mother. Under the word mother, mutter, we hear the theme of longing for love, and immediately following the word see, zayn, a fleeting echo of the main love theme of the ring. followed soon by the motif of Freya, the goddess of youth and love. Thomas Mann, in his celebrated essay, The Sorrows and Grandeur of Richard Wagner, which brought down on him the undying wrath of the Nazis, wrote the way Siegfried's thoughts of his mother slide into eroticism is pure Freud. Mann cites a letter in which Wagner wrote, love in the fullest meaning of the word is possible only in the sexual sense. All other love is derivative. Mann reminds us that both Freud and Wagner related psychology to myth, and it has been suggested that Wagner also anticipated Freud in wanting to raise the unconscious to the conscious. Mann's point concerning eroticism will be reinforced in Act Three when Siegfried again calls on his mother. But now, Siegfried's attention is caught by several lovely bird songs that Wagner tells us he noted down on long walks in the woods. Is the bird song, Siegfried wonders, telling him about his mother? Perhaps if he could imitate it, he could understand it. He cuts a reed pipe. And with only a moment's reflection, switches to his horn, hoping to gain understanding and perhaps companionship.
And with the appearance of the dragon, Siegfried laughs to think his call for a friend has brought him this monster. After insults back and forth, Siegfried draws his sword, evades the spray of poison, and stabs the threatening tail. Fafner rears up in pain, exposing his chest, and Siegfried drives Notung home. The dying Fafner now shows a gentleness and understanding that Robert Donington explains as having been absorbed when Fafner slew his more gentle brother, Fossold. But the words Fafner uses, Who are you? bright-eyed boy, who urged you to do this deed, are exactly those spoken by the dying dragon in the Volsunga saga. Fafner dies, Siegfried withdraws his sword, and a drop of burning blood makes him put his finger in his mouth. The blood of the dragon, as in the saga, instantly reveals the language of the birds. The bird advises him, you own the treasure now, take the Tarnhelm and the ring. And Siegfried enters the cave to get them. Now, Mima returns cautiously, only to be confronted by Alberich, and we witness an amusing but nasty quarrel over the gains they have not yet got. They hide again as Siegfried, to their annoyed surprise, returns not with childish trinkets, but with the ring and the Tarnhelm. Although, as he says, he doesn't know what good they are, nor has he learned fear. The bird sings again, Don't trust Mima. Thanks to the dragon's blood, you will now know what's in his heart, despite his words. Mima returns, and now the words Siegfried hears are Mima's inner thoughts. A thinned-down motif of brooding or scheming is heard as Mima says, Gently, you won't see me much anymore. I'll soon shut your eyes in eternal sleep. I've always hated you. Have a refreshing drink. It will put you to sleep. I'll kill you with your own sword and take the ring. Siegfried asks, Do you want to murder me in my sleep? I didn't say that. I only want to chop off your head. Have a drink, you'll never taste another. And Siegfried, as if in a fit of violent disgust, kills Mima, and the forest echoes with the laughter of Alberich. Siegfried drags Mima's body to Fafner's cave and throws it in, and blocks the mouth of the cave with a huge body of Fafner. After his exertions, Siegfried lies down to rest. He gazes into the branches, longs for companionship, and asks the forest bird to help him. The bird tells of a marvelous woman asleep on a crag surrounded by fire. And as Siegfried exclaims, O oh, lovely song, sweetest breath, we hear repeatedly the quick motif of love's joy. To Siegfried's delight, the bird says the bride can be awakened only by one who knows no fear. It flies off, leading him toward Brunhilde, as Act Two ends in a rhapsody of love's joy and bird song. Franz Liszt, once called Wagner the Unbelievable One. Certainly unbelievable, describes the events of the 12 years that passed before Wagner took pen in hand for Act Three of Siegfried.
After composing Act Two, Wagner decided the ring was unlikely to be performed soon, if ever. He stopped work on Siegfried in order to toss off two quick little moneymakers, that's what he said each in turn would be, Tristan and Isolde, and then De Meistersinger. Tristan, after endless rehearsals in Vienna, was given up as unplayable. Parts of it were first heard in Vienna only in a concert performance led by a great admirer of Wagner's, Johann Strauss, Jr. Happily enough, Wagner was a fan of both the junior and senior waltz kings. An important reason why Tristan did seem strange was its highly increased use of chromaticism, that is, the use of notes that are not one of the eight notes of a scale, as the black keys of a piano are not part of the scale of C major. The chromaticism of Tristan helped to express the suffering and longing of the lovers. Despite the fact that Tristan is extremely important in the history of music, it violated more than one of the principles set forth in Wagner's opera and drama. It used end rhyme, not just alliteration. It used the forbidden duets. It made music so important that at times it hardly matters what the words are. And it often used leitmotifs more for their musical value than their dramatic value. And then, astonishingly, in De Meistersinger, Wagner not only changed from dark tragedy to sunny comedy, but also gave up almost entirely both the chromaticism of Tristan and the Stabrime of the Ring. In De Meistersinger, he used the forbidden aria, the forbidden ensemble, and rather than myth, the forbidden historical subject matter. And yet, both De Meistersinger and Tristan are true to Wagner's stated goal, the goal of creating drama. Also unbelievable is the story of Wagner's career itself in those long years between Acts two and three of Siegfried. After Tristan was given up by Vienna, Wagner had to flee the city because of his familiar problem, enormous debts. There was absolutely no prospect for performing his new massive operas. It was more difficult than ever to ask friends for more money in a hopeless cause. He was understandably in the blackest depths of despair. But the year before, he had published the libretto of the ring with a preface asking for a German prince to appear and finance the great work. In the very month when Wagner fled Vienna, an 18-year-old boy who was intensely in love with Lohengrin and Tannhäuser and who had read that preface came to the throne of Bavaria and rescued Wagner. Those who know that story probably know also how Ludwig II lavished money on the composer to the indignation of many Bavarians. But only recently has research put that fact into perspective. It has been calculated that the 19-year total of all the money Wagner received from Ludwig was less than Meyerbeer earned from performances of only one of his operas in only one city, Le Prophet, in Berlin. And it was less than a third of the cost of a ceremonial carriage built for Ludwig, still to be seen in Munich today. Nevertheless, Ludwig's generosity was unique, and so was his genuine sympathy with Wagner's goals including even the reform of society through the theater. So it's almost more unbelievable that Wagner deceived him cruelly by denying reports of his affair with Cosima, the wife of his disciple, the brilliant conductor Hans von Bülow, even after she had had a child by Wagner. In time, the breach caused by Wagner's deceit was more or less healed, reopened, and then patched up again and Wagner's opera house at Bayreuth would still be only a dream today if not for the continued generosity of Ludwig. And what could have been more unbelievable than the idea of a temporary building, now more than a century old and flourishing more than ever, a temporary building for the operas of only one composer, an idea so visionary as to be in its time ridiculous. It was modeled to some extent on the Greek theater, yes, but even before his study of the ancient Greeks, Wagner had been impressed by the steep raking of the floor, the darkness of the auditorium, and the deep orchestra pit of the theater in Riga where he had conducted in 1840. And in one of his Paris short stories, he had objected to the sight of the orchestra even for concerts. 
And who could believe that the leading singers and musicians of Germany would come to the first Bayreuth Festival in 1876, rehearse long and intense hours, and perform for no salary? Incidentally, the young Lily Lehmann, a Rhine maiden, began to study her part early and thought there were mistakes in the music she was given, but they proved to be what Wagner wanted, this 11 years after the premiere of Tristan. Finally, let me complete this catalog of the unbelievable with a remarkable unity of Siegfried's music, even after the lapse of so many years before Wagner began to compose Act Three. Some critics emphasize the differences resulting from Wagner's experience in composing Tristan and Die Meistersinger, but to condense the words of Karl Dahlhaus, the amazing thing is that the use of leitmotifs from a common store was sufficient to prevent a sense of discontinuity. We hear that immediately in the stormy prelude to Act Three, where leitmotifs are manipulated with a new mastery and a new, almost careless prodigality. Among other things, Wagner uses three motifs to form a compound, a compound known as Need of the Gods, or Distress of the Gods. It was first heard in Die Valkyrie. The first part of Need of the Gods is the rising motif of the earth goddess Erda, now heard twice. Erda, in Das Rheingold, had predicted the twilight of the gods, a motif that simply turns hers upside down. Wagner frequently plays Erda and Twilight of the Gods together. But in the compound, Wagner uses only the first part of Twilight of the Gods, and for the moment, let me call it just Twilight. The third motif of the compound is known as Wotan's anger, or frustration, which begins with a deep snarl. Here is the complete compound motif of Need of the Gods, made up of Erda, Wotan's anger, and in between them, the first part of Twilight. In the very first bar of the prelude, there's a persistent accompaniment, the motif of riding, which is like the Valkyrie motif, but heralds the appearance of Wotan, who often travels on horseback. Here is the motif of riding with that of Erda. The brief prelude masterfully includes more motifs before we see Wotan striding resolutely through a stormy night at the foot of a mountain. He calls into the mouth of a cave to waken Erda, using the name Vala. There is no earth goddess in the mythology of the north, but there is in that of Greece, and Erda simply translates the name of the Greek goddess Gaia, which means earth. In northern mythology, there were wise women called Vala, from whom Odin did seek knowledge, as does Wotan now, crying to her to awake, Vacha Vala, Vala Ervach. Yes, Vala Ervach was to the main love motif of the ring. It's echoed in just a few seconds by the high strings. Here's the short passage beginning with Wotan, and including the high strings. I don't recall anyone saying why that love theme is used now with Wotan's forceful summons to Erda, but perhaps it's related to what he revealed in Die Valkyrie. After Erda warned of the twilight of the gods, Wotan had gone down into the earth to learn more and forced knowledge from her through the magic of love. Now, Erda slowly rises from the earth, glittering and bluish light, to face Wotan's questions. 
Her answers will merely recount what has happened before, but both Wotan and Erda are different now. Wotan especially is more complex in anguish over what he has to do. And as Ernest Newman has pointed out, it's mainly Wagner's music that conveys that psychological transformation. Wotan asks Erda how to stop a rolling wheel. Of course, there's no answer to that question. And now Wotan tells Erda what will happen, although he once, in rage and self-loathing, had resolved to leave the world to Albrecht. He now gladly and freely leaves it to the brave boy who, without advice from Wotan, has won the ring, the new motif of the world's inheritance. Having informed Erda, Wotan sends her back to sleep, and her eyes close even before she sinks out of sight. We hear the slow-falling motif of sleep as Wotan says, Go down to eternal sleep, hinab zu ewigen Schlaf. And now the forest bird heralds the approach of Siegfried for Act 3, Scene 2. Ernest Newman, in his first book-length study of Wagner in 1899, found the next scene unnecessary and even ludicrous. In the sixth volume on Wagner, half a century later, Newman says nothing like that. He finds that the scene furthers Wotan's purpose, the setting right of a primal wrong. Wotan happily asks Siegfried where he's going, who told him about the sleeping woman, how did he understand the bird, who told him to kill the dragon, who made the sword. And as his fatherly pride and good humor increase, Siegfried grows impatient. He threatens this second old nuisance with the fate of Mima if he doesn't get out of the way, and Wotan now becomes angry. Wagner wrote to a friend that Wotan, faced with annihilation, becomes so instinctively human that his pride and his jealousy of Brunhilde are stirred, and in a burst of passion, he even aspires to a victory he knows would make him, quote, more wretched than ever, unquote. Wotan points to the growing flames high on the mountain, and he bars the way with a spear, he says, once broke the sword Siegfried is holding. Siegfried is exultant at finding his father's enemy, and as we hear the sword motif, which will be followed by that of the broken spear, Siegfried cries, swing your spear, my sword will shatter it. What could be more poetically beautiful or profound, asks Thomas Mann, than Wotan's relationship to Siegfried, the fatherly mocking and condescending attachment of the god to the boy who will destroy him. There is no explanation I know as to why the sword is now able to shatter the spear, although, of course, this somewhat echoes the primitive myth of the young god displacing the old god. And so Wotan abruptly vanishes from Siegfried's pathway and from the ring and will appear no more, although we will hear of him again. Now Siegfried sounds his horn, rushes into the spreading flames and disappears. The triumphant blending of motifs reaches a climax, subsides, and then, after so much darkness, violins with a breathtaking slowness rise higher and higher toward the bright sky at the mountaintop.
Siegfried looks about in astonished joy at the tranquility of the scene. He sees Brunhilde's faithful horse, Grana, asleep. And then, what looks like a man in uncomfortable armor. He removes the helmet and is struck by the beauty of the loosened hair. He cuts the rings of the armor with Notung, sees the soft, womanly clothing, and cries out the line that almost invariably draws a laugh, Das ist kein Mann, that is no man. He is filled with burning enchantment. Is this fear? He calls out, Mother. He fails to wake Brunhilde with words, kisses her, and with the tension of long anticipation, she slowly wakes from a sleep that began before Siegfried was born, and with the help of an ecstatic orchestra, greets the radiant sun. I never cease exploring Wagner's sublime world of ideas. I owe him an enormous amount, hours of most wonderful exaltation, said Giuseppe Verdi at the age of 86. Words that speak for most of us confronted with this rapturous final scene. Brunhilde's words, hail to the sun, hail to the day, are quoted directly from the poetic Edda. A greeting to the sun was used before Wagner in operas by Weber and others and even the music, resembles part of the Faust symphony of Liszt. But Wagner's setting of Heil der Sonne is superb, and its effect is all the greater because of the tension that immediately precedes it. Among the motifs that follow is that of love's ecstasy or love's rapture. And two themes familiar from the concert hall, themes from the Siegfried Idol, which Wagner wrote to serenade the woman who is now his second wife, Cosima, on the birth of their son, Siegfried. The first theme from the Idol has been called Peace or Purity. The second theme from the Siegfried Idol is given the words, Siegfried, treasure of the world. last scene of the opera, Wagner, as both composer and dramatist, dazzlingly captures extreme shifts of emotion. Brunhilde says she loved Siegfried before he was born. Siegfried thinks she is his mother. Brunhilde laughs and explains. He fails to understand, but yearns to kiss her. The Valkyrie now regrets the loss of her divinity and is struck with virginal shame and terror. She pleads with Siegfried to leave her, but he asks her to be his. I have always been yours. Then be mine now. Siegfried embraces her, and she feels now a divine calm within her, but then a furious fire. Are you not afraid of the wild, raging woman? Siegfried exclaims, Ich dumme. He has stupidly forgotten what fear means. 
Brunhilde laughs wildly at the fearless, foolish boy. Laughing, she will love him. Laughing, they will perish together. Laughing, return to earth. Zugrunde gehen. And as she says, Zugrunde, exultant horns begin the opera's final new motif, love's resolution, accompanying, despite opera and drama, a triumphant love duet. It's really impossible to capture with excerpts the way the music of this scene flows from climax to climax. So with the promise of more marvels to come talking about Goethe-Demmerung, let me close with the final music of the laughing, doubly awakened Brunhilde and the laughing, again fearless Siegfried. Thank you so much for listening to episode 45 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. We have just one more opera to go in our Ring Cycle series, which we will be releasing before the end of the week. As always, if you have enjoyed listening, please let us know by leaving us a review in iTunes or sending us an email at lectures at operaed.org. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.